just like this one. These children are facing death right now, but with your support and just 50 cents a day, we can save them. Please go online or call this number and join the U.S. Fund for UNICEF for only $15 a month. I was uh, walking on the treadmill last week when I was interrupted by this commercial. <laughs> At first, I changed the channel. Uh, the second time, I, I watched it, and, and at the end of the commercial, I thought to myself, you know, maybe I should, I should give. Jesus said, um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. This is the great and first commandment, and the second one, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as your yourself. And so I thought, uh, maybe I, I should give. St. Paul wrote, uh, the entire law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so I thought, maybe I should give. And then I thought, yeah. But is that kid my neighbor? Yeah, 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 but, but that's UNICEF. That's the United Nations Children's Fund. And, you know, some people say that the United Nations is the beginning of the one world government ruled by the Antichrist. I thought, yeah, 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 I should give, but, 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 but what will they be teaching that kid? I mean, that kid might be a Muslim. And he might be radicalized. So yeah, yeah, but we all, we all must die. And no one is innocent like the video suggests. And how presumptive of me to think that I could save anyone. So yeah, 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 but, 
but is that kid my neighbor? I mean, some African kid on the other side of the world whom I have no relationship with and I have no knowledge of, is that kid my neighbor? Is that kid my neighbor? Now, I could give to an organization that would work really hard to make that kid my neighbor, turn us into pen pals and doing all kinds of stuff like, like that. But, but yeah, 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 but, but, but even then, would he truly be my neighbor? Because, you know, some people, they say that God has, uh, well, well, he has predestined or he has assigned a whole bunch of people to endless separation from him, uh, separated from the kingdom of heaven in outer darkness, eternally, endlessly, not my neighbor. What you believe about that kind of changes things. So I thought, yeah, but is that kid my neighbor? Maybe you were even asking that question while the video was showing just a moment ago. Yeah, love my neighbor, but is that kid my neighbor? It's what I seem to always ask during those commercials, and then I answer, I don't know. I, I guess I need more knowledge. More knowledge of good and evil. That's what I need. And by then the news is back on and I'm on my way to nowhere, walking on the treadmill. Let's pray. Lord God, we need you to preach your word. Not a dead word, but the living word living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And would you help us, Lord God, to trust your word that he's good. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, check this out. A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A lawyer. Now, in that day, when people said lawyer, they didn't think of lawyer like you're thinking of lawyer. It wasn't an expert in civil law, but religious law. Someone like me. <laughs> Someone that would tell you what God requires. Someone that could give you, you know, knowledge of good and evil, principles, formulas, values. Law is knowledge of good and evil that you can take and apply to your life in order to make yourself a better person, in order to make yourself right or just. Right and just, same word in Greek, dikaios. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, ekparizo, is the Greek word. It's an interesting word. It only appears uh, here and in one other instance in the Gospels. Jesus uses it when he quotes the Old Testament to the devil, saying, you shall not paraizo, you shall not tempt, ek paraizo, the, the Lord your God. So a lawyer stood up uh, to tempt Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What is life? You know, biologists and scientists and philosophers, they all argue about that, and, and no one's really quite sure. I mean, biologists don't know if a virus, for instance, is, is alive. Is a complex computer program that replicates itself 
alive. Uh, they're even asking now, is the entire universe alive or is it dead? The lawyer asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, technically, the only thing that you can do to inherit anything is what? Kill the one that you want to inherit it from, right? That's what you have to do if you're looking to inherit something. And Jesus said, I am the life. And the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Anyway, verse 25, and behold, check this out. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Anagonosko. Uh, gnosko is the Greek word that means to know. Anagonosko means something like come to know. So Jesus asked, how do you come to know what good about, how do you come to know about good and evil? And then the lawyer quotes the law. Uh, the lawyer your answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Think that through. Love the Lord your God with all you've got, all you've got, and still Love your neighbor. That implies that God is like in your neighbor. As if they were like his temple or his body. And if we are to love them as we love ourselves, maybe we are even his temple and his body. Some people say you can't love your neighbor until you learn to love yourself. You heard that? But Jesus didn't say, love your neighbor as you should love yourself, but as you do love yourself. You may not love yourself well, but you do love yourself. You may not love yourself with the truth, but you will love yourself with a sandwich, for instance. I mean, if you're really hungry and you got five bucks in your pocket, you'll just buy yourself a sandwich. If you're cold, you'll put on a jacket. If, if you're thirsty, you'll give yourself a cup of cold, cold water. Now, didn't even think about it. So if you loved your neighbor as yourself, you'd be just as concerned that your neighbor had a, a sandwich, a jacket, and a, and a cup of cold water. You'd love them as if they were your own body. You may not like your body, but you love your body. To prove this theory, just pinch the person next to you and they'll defend their body. They may not like their body very much, but they'll defend it. They, they love it. Likewise, you may hate the things you do or have done, but you love yourself. C.S. Lewis wrote this. I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate the sin, but not the sinner. I used to think this a silly straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man. 
Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who would do those things. I mean, think about it. It's because you love yourself that you hate your sin and you try to fix yourself. It's because you love yourself that you try to justify yourself. That is, make yourself right and seem right. Justify yourself. Well, if you loved your neighbor as yourself, you desire your neighbor's justification just as much as you desire your own justification. You'd feel the pain and the shame of their sin just as you feel the pain and the shame of your own sin. And you might even pray, Father, forgive them and actually mean it. You'd feel their hunger in your own belly. And you just buy them a sandwich. Quick as you'd buy yourself a sandwich. If you were buying a jacket at Walmart, for instance, and you considered everybody in the checkout line to be your neighbor, well, um, you'd be just as concerned that they each had a jacket as you were concerned that you had a jacket, and you would enjoy buying them a jacket so they could wear a jacket just as you enjoy buying and wearing your own jacket. If you loved your neighbor as yourself, you would feel the pain of their thirst, and you would experience the pleasure of cool water in their parched throat. You would love them as your own body. That's the way the Christ, Jesus the Christ, loves us, explains Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. And then he writes, no one ever hated his own flesh. No one. But he nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church. But maybe that's the problem with my flesh. And not that it's physical or enjoys pleasure, but that it only experiences its own pleasure. It only feels its own pain and its own pleasure. I don't know how true this is, but I once read that there are nerve endings for pain, but not for pleasure. So, so pain can be localized. But pleasure is more complex. It's experienced when many things come together. So pain is a divided body, and pleasure is like a unified body or bodies. Well, my flesh doesn't feel the pain or pleasure of any other person's flesh. Well, except maybe for that of my brides in the communion of the sacrament of the covenant of our marriage. For there is a moment when her pleasure literally like becomes my pleasure and we are like one body and I don't have to love. I get to love. Woo, this is awesome. I love it. In my marriage. And sometimes with my kids, when they were little, I used to take each of them on what we would call a day off. It was like a little date. Becky and Elizabeth really loved to go to the Table Mountain Inn down in Golden. 
I'd uh, take them one at a time for not dinner, but dessert. And Becky would just get, I remember Becky, she, was a, she would get so excited. Her eyes would be huge. Susan would dress her up, you know. And when the chocolate, the ice cream chocolate taco would come, oh, she was just so excited. And I think it tasted better in her mouth than it did in mine. And I think I tasted it in her mouth. As she looked at me with those big eyes, I like experienced her joy. Coleman always wanted to go to Loaf and Jug <laughs> for, for a hot dog. And the hot dog did taste better in his mouth than, than my own. But I mean, it really tasted better as if he were my own flesh. As if I loved him as I loved myself. As if I wanted to feed him just like I want to and actually enjoy feeding myself. I mean, it's not, I just enjoy it. I just do it. I feed myself. So Jesus says to the lawyer, that is correct. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You know, apart from a few precious moments with my wife and my kids, I, I wonder if I really ever do that. I wonder if anyone ever does that. I mean, think about it. If you did that on a consistent basis and considered more than three or four people to be your neighbor, you'd, you'd probably end up with only the jacket on your back and no place to lay your head. I mean, can you think of anyone that ever actually lived like that? Jesus says, do this and you will live. That probably means do this and you will be living. Like life is not the reward you get for love. Life is love. And love is, is life. And, and Jesus doesn't say eternal life, but just life. As if any life is one thing loving another thing. One molecule cooperating with another molecule. One cell uh, sacrificing for another cell. One member unified with another member uh, under one head according to one will and one body. One person in communion with another person is life. Well, if all things were filled with love and God is love, maybe that would be like eternal life, the life of the age to come, the age in which everyone loves and everyone is a neighbor. And so there is no pain and I will experience everyone's joy, even God's joy, God's pleasure. Jesus said, I came that my joy might be in you. And now Jesus says, do this and live. Love and live. It's interesting that when Jesus quotes the law, he does not say, you should love the Lord your God. He says, you shall love the Lord your God. And the Greek is a very simple uh, verb tense. It's just a future active indicative. And so most literally translated, Jesus says, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. You will. How do you read that? How do you anagonosco that? 
How do you understand that? How do you know that? How do you take that as a challenge? Maybe a threat? Or a promise? John 12, 50, Jesus says the Father's commandment is eternal. That's what he commands. The Father's commandment is eternal life. The word of God is eternal life. How do you know that? How do you come to know the word of God? As a promise or a threat? Well, the lawyer obviously takes Jesus as a threat. And so he quotes the law and Jesus says, correct. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Next verse. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Uh, Okay, yeah, but, yeah, love my neighbor, but is an African kid with whom I have no relationship, who, who might be an enemy, is that kid my neighbor, said the lawyer, trying to justify himself. Justify. Is there anything you do that's not done in an effort to justify yourself? That is, make yourself right, or just, or a better person. I mean, why do you wear the clothes you wear? I mean, I know it's cold outside, but even in the summer, when it's hot in here, you'll you'll wear, why why do you wear the clothes you wear? Isn't it to make yourself look right? Why do you say the things you say? Isn't it to make yourself sound just? Why do you do the things that you do? Isn't it to make yourself a better person, to to be good, to justify yourself? Do you do anything apart from justifying yourself? If you do, you probably don't remember it because you lost yourself while you were doing it. You, you lost yourself. And, and, and then maybe you, you found yourself, but you didn't have to make yourself do it. You just did it. You hugged a friend. You smiled at one of your kids. You kissed your bride just because you loved her. Not because you were worried about yourself. Love wasn't a a threat or love wasn't a challenge. It was more like a, a gift. And so the good was a blessing and not a curse, not a painful responsibility. Why do you go to church? To justify yourself? Or to worship? Why do you read your Bible? How do you come to know the word of God? The revelation of the good. When W.C. Fields was old and sick and on his deathbed, one day his wife walked in and was surprised to find him reading the Bible because W.C. Fields was just not into that kind of thing. And she said, W.C., you're, you're reading the Bible. What's gotten into you? And he replied, I'm looking for loopholes, my dear. I'm looking for loopholes. You will love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer, desiring to just himself, said, said who's my neighbor? What's he doing? He's looking for loopholes. If you desire to justify yourself, well, then your desire is to have very few neighbors. 
because you know something. You've come to know something. You've taken the fruit from the tree and you know something. If you, if you desire to justify yourself, then you desire to have very few neighbors because you have to love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? Asks the lawyer. Maybe the answer is no one. Is that heaven? Or is that hell? Maybe the answer is everyone. Is that a curse? Or is that a blessing? I mean, don't you want somebody to love? Don't you need somebody to love? Wouldn't you love somebody to love? No, you wouldn't. Not if you're trying to justify yourself. If you're trying to justify yourself, you, you, you want to have to love very few people and ultimately no people because people can be rather challenging to love. You know, I, I really don't know whether you should or shouldn't give your money to UNICEF or maybe some other organization or a person. I don't know if I should give to that kid on the screen, but the really terrifying thought is maybe I don't want to. I mean, maybe that's what I've come to know in this world. I mean, that's the terrifying thought. The terrifying thought is there's something in Peter Hyatt that wants very few neighbors, maybe even no neighbors. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? No. Because you see, I'm, I'm trying to justify myself. And so I hope that you are not my neighbor. I, I hope to hell that Syrians and Iraqis and people on the other side of the world are not my neighbor. I hope that my enemies are not my neighbor. I, I even hope that my wife and my kids are not my neighbor. Hell, I think I even hope that I'm not my own neighbor. Because if I got no neighbors, then I got no one that I have to love. I'm totally alone in outer darkness. Do you understand? That I, that me, that psyche, that psyche that looks for loopholes in love and consistently, uh, incessantly lusts for hell, that psyche, that me, that I, must die. Or maybe it's already dead. And I just 
don't know it. The lawyer asks Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story. Don't you hate that? Tells a story. I mean, Moses and Muhammad, they'll try to give you a straight answer. Jesus tells a story, as if some questions are already the wrong answer, like, sweetheart, love muffin, how much romantic dialogue do I have to engage in before we can make whoopee? <laughs> how much do I have to give? 10%? Is that before taxes? Is that after taxes? Lord God, how much do I have to pray to you? How much do I have to speak to you in order to be saved? How, how much do I have to love in order to inherit your life? The lawyer wants a list. And we want a list. Who's, who's my neighbor? We want a list. The law is a list. And it, it's not evil, but what we do with it is evil. The law is a description of love. What will the lawyer do with it if he gets it? You know what he'll do with it? He'll use it to justify himself. He'll tithe mint, rue, dill, and cumin. He'll, he'll give alms to the poor, and he'll end up hating God, hating his neighbor, and hating himself. He will, he will use it to justify himself. He will use love to save himself rather than lose himself for the sake of love, and so find himself lost in love. In other words... He will crucify the Christ rather than surrender to the Christ. He will take knowledge of the good on the tree rather than receive the life of the good given on the tree. Now, the lawyer says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells him a story. It's a very good story. It's called the gospel. But if you're trying to justify yourself, you'll butcher the story and you'll turn it into a law. The law will kill you. But do not fear. Even that is part of the story. It's a very, very, very good story. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a finely crafted inverse parabolic ballad in seven stanzas where everything hinges on the middle stanza, stanza number four. Okay, stanza number one, verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, Jerusalem is traditionally the site of the Garden of Eden and the celestial city. Jericho is the elevation of the Dead Sea, lowest point on earth, the edge of the abyss. The man, the Adam in Hebrew, is descending from Jerusalem to Jericho. The Adam falls among robbers who strip him, and now he's half dead. He's unconscious. In that day, people were identified and justified by what they wore and what they said and what they, they did, their clothing, their speech. This man cannot justify himself. He is literally naked, half dead, unconscious, stripped of his fig leaves. He is naked humanity, unable to say a word, unable to do a thing, unable to justify himself. Most likely he's a Jew, but we don't know that. And a traveler couldn't tell that. We have no relationship with him. Kind of like that little kid in the UNICEF commercial. Stanza two. Now, by chance, a priest who would be riding, he'd be in the upper class, was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. You know, neighbor can be translated near. 
but this priest does not want to be near. And the listeners, they would consider him justified because according to the law, the priest would be defiled if he touched a Gentile, and it could be a Gentile, or he got within four cubits of a corpse. And ritual purification was humiliating, expensive, and it was extremely, he justifies himself, in other words, uh, using the law, and so passes by on the other side, stanza three. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, a Levite was like an assistant to the priest. He would have probably been walking. So he could not have carried the man to safety, but he could have rendered first aid. He would have also likely known that the priest had already uh, passed by. And so he must have been thinking to himself, yeah, I should love. But who am I to do what the priest did not do? And, and I too could be defiled and the robbers must still be close. In fact, this man could be, he could be one of the robbers. He fell among the robbers. Maybe he is a robber. So I, I don't want to be near. I don't want him to be my neighbor. And so he justifies himself and passes by on the other side of the road. The priest and the Levite both served in the temple in Jerusalem. And so the listeners would expect the next person to be coming down the road to be like an Israelite layman who had been worshiping at the temple. Verse 33 stands in number four, but a Samaritan. That would have come as a shock to the listeners. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion with passion. Splug gids. It comes from this Greek word splognon, which means bowels or guts. He had a, a bowel movement, but not like you're thinking. It means that deep in his guts, he felt the pain of the man on the side of the road. Now, it would have been a stretch for the listeners to hear about a Jew that had pity on a desperate Samaritan, but to hear about a Samaritan who had splogizomai, compassion upon a naked, half-dead, probably Jew, would have just about stripped the listeners of all their pride and crucified their psyches right on the spot. Daily in the synagogues, Samaritans were cursed. The Jews were instructed to pray that the Samaritans would not inherit eternal life, but they would be eternally separated, eternally not neighbors forever and ever and ever without end in hell. And this is the really sad irony in the whole thing. They were brothers, Jews and Samaritans like Jacob and Esau, like Isaac and Ishmael. The Samaritans were descendants of the 10 lost tribes of Israel and Syrians. Now the Bible's such an old antiquated book. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine anybody that would not want to be a neighbor with a Syrian or an Israelite for that matter, or a half-bred Israelite Syrian, a Samaritan. Stanza number five, the Samaritan went to him. He chose to be near him and bound up his wounds. The prophet said that God binds up our wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Jesus uses language that makes it clear that the Samaritan does what the Levite does in the temple, pouring on oil and wine. Oil and wine were sacrificial libations in the temple. In that day, they were also first aid. So the oil would soften the wound and then the wine would cleanse the wound. So the sacrifice was mercy at a temple of flesh. You know, Jesus often quoted the, the prophet um, Hosea who said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The Samaritan fulfills the law that the Levite did not fulfill. 
Stanza six. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Samaritan does what the priest could have done and should have done. He not only gives first aid, he brings the man to safety and at great danger to himself. Samaritans also believed that they'd be ritual defiled by contact with a corpse. Samaritans were even more danger in that part of the world than were Jews, danger from, from robbers. And for a Samaritan to ride into a Jewish town like Jericho, with an unconscious, naked, half-dead, probably Jew on the back of his jackass, well, that would get a Samaritan killed. But this Samaritan isn't concerned with justifying himself. He's concerned with justifying the half-dead, naked Adam on the side of the road. Stanza number seven. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan is coming back. He will return again. And that's the end. That's an inverse parabolic ballad in seven stanzas where everything depends upon the middle stanza, the arrival of the Samaritan. Next verse, Jesus says to the lawyer, which one of these three, lawyer, do you think proved to be a neighbor? To the man who fell among the robbers, who proved to be a helper? To the Adam who fell among the robbers and maybe is a robber, that is someone who takes the goods rather than surrendering to the good. Who is Adam's helper? Adam. Who became a neighbor? Who proved to be a neighbor over those seven stanzas? The lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, go. You go and do likewise. Wow, I mean, the lawyer was judging Jesus, and it seems like Jesus just judged the lawyer <laughs> with a story and a question. Who justified the Adam? Who proved to be his neighbor? Who became his neighbor? <laughs> And now you may be thinking to yourself, hey, wait a minute, what just happened? The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Did Jesus ever answer his question? The lawyer asked, who's my neighbor? And Jesus got him to confess the enemy who came to the fallen, naked, half-dead man, the one who showed the Adam the mercy. That's the neighbor. Well, is that the lawyer's neighbor? If so, it kind of makes the lawyer into the fallen, naked, half-dead man with one foot in the grave. That is Hades or Sheol. That, that is hell. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. 
Go and do likewise. How's the lawyer going to go and do likewise? How are you going to go and do likewise? That is, make yourself last and least and despise like a Samaritan, traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, having compassion on everyone you meet, loving them from your very gut, feeling their pain, their sorrow, as if their wounds were your own wounds, and then pouring on your oil and your wine, your lifeblood and your very spirit, pleased to give your life for those that hate you, loving them as you love yourself. Not because because you have to, but because you want to. Not because you're trying to make yourself good, uh, but because you are good. Not because you're trying to justify yourself, but because you're justified in all your words and long to justify everyone else with your judgment. Because you're just and the justifier. Go and do likewise. And then you'll be alive? I mean, the lawyer must be thinking to himself, I'm not alive. I'm dead. The priest is dead. The Levite is dead. All the robbers are dead. And I'm dead. I don't need the priests. I don't need the Levites. I don't need more knowledge of good and evil. I don't need more knowledge of the good. I need the good. Samaritan. I can't make myself the good Samaritan. I need to be saved by the good Samaritan. But who is the good Samaritan? <laughs> Jesus said, no one is good. But God alone. In John 8, the Jews who had made themselves enemies of Jesus, they say to Jesus, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? And Jesus says, well, I don't have a demon. Karl Barth writes, the good Samaritan is not far from the lawyer. He stands before him incarnate, although hidden under the form of one whom the lawyer believed he should hate, as the Jews hated the Samaritans. And so, I guess, this is your judgment. Will you allow yourself to be loved by your scapegoat? The one you have hated in order to justify yourself. Every time you use love, every time you use love to save your psyche rather than lose your psyche for the sake of love, you take the good God in flesh and nail him to a tree. Jesus said, whatever you do unto the least of these, you do to me. And one day you will see him and you will realize that you have used the good. Used the good. Crucified the good and made him your enemy. But behold, now you can see it. He has made you his neighbor. He loves you as he loves himself. He loves you as if you were his very own body, even his bride. 
When you see it, you will be stripped of all your self-righteousness, all your ego. You'll lose your psyche, your life. Jesus is the good Samaritan, and you yourself, the lawyer, are dead. But Jesus still says, go and do likewise. <laughs> yeah. So should we even try to go and do likewise, even if we're dead or think we're dead or part dead or something having to do with, with dead? Should, should we go and do like? I think so. In fact, I think that's how we discover that we are dead. And that's the purpose of the law. Uh, that's how I learn about the good and discover I'm not good. That's how I realize that I'm not the Samaritan. And it's when I realize that I'm not the Samaritan uh, that I can finally meet the Samaritan. When I see that I can't justify myself, I can finally believe that I am justified. When I face my sin, I can finally see grace. When I stop trying to take the good, I can finally be known by the good. And then know the good, not as a dead good, but a, a living good standing right in front of me, the living incarnate good. Jesus said to the lawyer, what is the law? What is the good? How do you read it? How do you come to know it? How did the fallen naked half-dead guy on the side of the road come to know it? We didn't know the good because he took knowledge of the good. He knew the good because the good came and knew him and took him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. I think we should try to go and do likewise because that's how we discover that we're dead. And he is alive. That's how we stop trying to be good and become good, because we are good, because we have been justified. All I'm saying is 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Last week, Carl preached an amazing sermon, and he asked this question. Why can't we receive love? Well, isn't it because we think we have to earn love? We think we have to justify ourselves. We think we have to earn love, but love cannot be earned. Love is God. Love is God, and, and, and we're like dead until we see him resurrected, standing before us. We love because he first loved us. We can only go and do likewise once we see that he has come and done so wise. We cannot go and do likewise if we're trying to justify ourselves. We can only go and do likewise once we see that we have been justified. And then we don't have to love. We want to find somebody to love. We become the body of the Good Samaritan. We experience his life and begin to know his joy. Life is a neighborhood created and maintained by love. And then we stop waiting for neighbors because that's what we do, right? Well, who's going who's gonna to love me? We're, we're not waiters for neighbors. We're neighbor creators, the body of the Samaritan in this world. You know, the early church, Clement, Irenaeus, Origen, they all argued that the man in Jesus' story was Adam. 
Jerusalem was Eden. Jericho was this world. The robbers were Satan or men controlled by Satan. The priests and the Levites were the law and the prophets. The Samaritan is Jesus. And the end is the church. The body of the Samaritan in this world. The body of the neighbor creator. And so once you realize you've been justified, you, you stop asking, is he my neighbor? And you make him your neighbor with the love of the Samaritan. Just before Jesus told this story to the lawyer in Luke chapter 10, he thanked God that he'd hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, the knowledgeable, and revealed them to little children. And, and that makes sense. Why? Well, because little children can't justify themselves. And they usually want somebody to love. On a quiet street in the city, a little old man walked along. Then among the leaves near an orphan's home, a piece of paper caught his eye. Whoever finds this, I love you. Whoever finds this, I need you. I ain't got no one to talk to. So whoever finds this, I love you. The old man's eyes looked up and searched the orphan's home and came to rest upon a child. And the old man knew he found a friend at last. And so he waved to her and smiled. They spent the winter laughing at the rain, talking through the fence and exchanging little gifts they had made for each other. But then on the first day of June, the little girl ran to the fence to show the old man a picture she drew, but he wasn't there. And somehow the little girl knew he wasn't coming back. So she went to her room, took a crayon and paper and wrote, whoever finds this, I love you. Whoever finds this, I need you. I ain't even got no one to talk to. So whoever finds this, I love you. Maybe it's more than just a little kid writing that note. Maybe it's more than just an African kid looking through you at those eyes on the TV. Maybe it's the Good Samaritan. Even in the last and the least of these singing to you, won't you be? Please, won't you be my neighbor? And maybe that's not a curse. Maybe that's a blessing, an invitation to live his life and know his pleasure, the pleasure of God. Isaiah, through Isaiah, the Lord says to Israel, is not this the fast that I choose, Israel, to share your bread with the hungry? and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Your own flesh. As if in the words of St. Paul, uh, neighbors are members one of another in one body. As if my neighbor is my own flesh and blood. 
Greg O'Leary was walking home late one night on a street that he usually didn't travel upon, a dimly lit street. He was walking down the street when he heard muffled screams coming from behind a clump of bushes. He kind of panicked when he realized that he was hearing the unmistakable sounds of a violent struggle. Only yards from where he stood, a woman was being attacked. He thought to himself, should I do something or should I just keep walking? He was frightened for his own safety. He cursed himself for having walked home that strange way that night, so late at night. What if I become another statistic, he thought. Shouldn't I just run to the nearest phone and then call the police? No, he told himself. I cannot abandon this unknown woman to, to this fate, even if it means risking my life. And then he writes this. I'm not a brave man, nor am I athletic. I don't know where I found the moral courage or the physical strength, but I ran behind the bushes and pulled the assailant off the woman. Grappling, we fell to the ground where we wrestled for, for a few minutes until the attacker jumped up and escaped. Panting hard, I scrambled upright and approached the girl who was crouched behind a tree sobbing. In the darkness, I could barely see her outline, but I could certainly sense her trembling fear. Not wanting to frighten her anymore, I, I at first spoke to her from a distance. I said, it's okay. He ran away. You're safe now. There was a long pause, and then I heard her words uttered in wonder and amazement. Dad? Is that you? And then from behind the tree stepped my youngest daughter, Catherine. You see, maybe every person on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is your neighbor. And maybe every neighbor is your own flesh and blood, even that of your enemies. And, and maybe one day you'll see that they are not a curse, but a blessing. And love is not a threat, but a promise. Even a covenant. For on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. And so this is the question. Who proved to be your neighbor? You know, we uh, come asking, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And the Samaritan shows up and he says, in this is love. See how I have loved you? This is how I have always loved you and will always love you now. Wouldn't you um, want somebody to love? Don't you need somebody to love? Wouldn't you love somebody to love? You better find somebody to love. And so come to the table and receive his love and become the body of the Samaritan. In Jesus' name, amen.
So thank you, Father, for your word incarnate and loving us constantly. Amen. Now, if you're new or even if you're old, maybe you're thinking to yourself, golly, there were parts of that that were really condemning. And then there were parts that were strangely liberating. <laughs> yeah, it was both. And that wasn't just a one-time kind of thing that happens at camp when you're in junior high. It's meant to happen every day when you stand before the Samaritan and you begin to see your own sin, your own self. And when you see it, don't try to justify it. It's dead. Just look at it. Dead. Nailed to the cross with Jesus. Dead. Just let it go. That's not you. It's dead. Confess it. That's what it means. And then, if you happen to look back and you think, hey, look at that. I love somebody from the heart because I wanted to. <laughs> Don't be proud. That's the spirit of the Samaritan in you. And so what is God always doing in this world over these seven stanzas, these seven days? Well, he's crucifying the old dead lawyer and he's giving birth to his body, the body of Christ, the body of the Samaritan in this world, preparing you for a party that will never end, the kingdom of heaven where everybody is neighbors and everybody loves one another as they love themselves. Well, that's pretty good news. So believe the gospel and you'll live the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.